In this week's episode, we're joined by Andrew Buto, the co-founder and change leadership facilitator at Earth to Mars. Andrew helps business navigate the complex and ever-changing landscape of future of work. With a focus on people-centric change, he works with organizations to define, plan, and execute change initiatives that achieve real outcomes through systematic alignment of people, processes, and technology. I love today's chat. We talked about how we use people and, and values within a business to drive change, how we listen to the people around us, and how we don't use authoritarian leadership to drive change. Andrew had some great insights onto how to make a business work and how to use technology to enhance the processes that we're doing. So sit back, listen, and enjoy today's episode. Andrew, welcome to the uh, Cock and Bomb podcast, mate. Uh, thanks, Jamie. Great to be here. Mate, I've uh, been going through your CV. I know Tony's shattered that he's not on today. He's, he's enjoying himself in Europe, so I don't know how shattered he is. Oh, but, you know, this is I'm one that so he organised. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is the one that he organised and really wanted on. But, mate, I've been going through your CV, going through the LinkedIn, and what I love is, you know, a lot of it's around strategy, people, processes, and change. And, you know, we were just talking offline about, you know, what the pandemic bought and, and how hard it was during those times for people. And, and we're going to get onto your business a bit later. But, mate, this whole idea around sort of change and leadership, um, do you want to touch on sort of your background and, and sort of your views around that? Yeah, sure. Well, firstly, I haven't heard the word CV in a while uh, since yeah. I started a business, so it's, a, it's quite interesting hearing that again, and I'm almost getting a trigger response, like, oh, <laughs> from my J-O-B days. <laughs> but, um, yeah, change, it's, it's become quite a topic, and I think it's something that is so well-defined, yet so misunderstood. And uh, – my definition of what change leadership is, what change management is, really is it depends who you're talking to. Yeah. So often it's um, the way I frame it, if I take the textbook or the academic approach of change management being, you know, helping people get from A to B with communications, with learning, with uh, engagement, um, it doesn't really go that far. So I like to frame it differently. So, for example, if I'm talking to a CEO, we know CEOs are big on strategy, big on their vision that they, they hold quite personally. And really, uh, a lot of the problems they might have are, um, you know, people aligning to that vision, people aligning yeah. their values, their hearts, their hands to that vision and actually following through on their strategic programs on work. So that's the problem I solve in change. If I'm talking to a CIO or a, a, a CXO, <laughs> um, Typically, they focused on digital or they focused on technology. So their biggest KPI is people adopting and using the sexy technology they might be using in their company. So the problem I solve there is uh, driving adoption in terms love, of that technology. Yeah, you're talking before around CEOs and, you know, historically CEOs have been people that have gone and done an MBA. They've followed that structured approach around strategy. Yes. You know, I think all businesses trying to follow a leader and their vision, that's hard. So how do you, how do you yes. work with the CEO to align sort of the entire business? A hundred percent. That's a good, good question. So uh, similar to with a, whatever the, the C word is, um, a lot of them have pain points. And I think there's a big assumption out there that we are, as human beings, very logical creatures and we all follow structure. 
And I'm glad you mentioned the pandemic because that's what the federal government tried to do. It's a great case study to actually <laughs> bring to life what we do in change and why it's important is, you know, they had a beautiful plan. They had this very structured approach with numbers and a phase A, phase B, phase C, phase D of all the vaccinations. And nobody got vaccines. <laughs> we had one of the lowest uptakes. And it was only until we started engaging people emotionally, when we started actually getting into the communities, understanding who the people were, what drove them from an emotional and behavioural point of view, that they were able to then drive those engagement rates around vaccinations up. And it works similar with CEOs and CIOs, and especially CFOs. Um, they, they're my favourite to work with because, you know, they're all about risk, right? And yeah. the way I'll define what we do is we manage the people risk. You're going to invest all this money. You want one return on investment in an organisation, but a lot of those operational metrics we use to calculate return on investment sit on top of human behaviour. It requires people to behave differently, follow a process, use a technology, show up in a certain way with clients. And in order for people to do that, they need capability, they need learning, they need to be nurtured. And if you want to get people to learn something, they, they've got to know why. So it goes back to sort of the Simon Sinek approach in the world is, you know, if we don't start with that why and engage people emotionally first, it's very hard to get them to follow a structure. So a lot of CEOs or, or business owners might have this fantasy that because we've got a beautiful PowerPoint or a, a beautiful structure or really sexy values, that that alone is, is going to just drive people to engage. And people will engage with that kind of stuff as long as we lead with the emotion first. So the, 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 the basic rule of change is, uh, you know, as humans, we make decisions based on emotions first. And I'm sure you see this in finance in what you guys do. Yeah. And then we use our logic to then justify it. And if anyone doesn't believe me, well, then I know there's a lot of listeners who might have been stockpiling toilet paper when the pandemic happened. So there was no logical reason for that, right? But yet globally, we just sort of did this kind of stuff. So it's about bringing that logic and science and marrying it with the art of actually engaging people. And for me, engagement is just two things. It's it's one, do people understand uh, the importance of a change, of a strategy, of a way forward, of a different business direction? And secondly, do they understand how it impacts their roles? And if we can get them engaged, we can build capability, we can build and nurture and coach that behavior, which then translates into operational metrics. So, um, you know, that's how I sort of align the two together. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. And you, I think when we're talking about the pandemic and coming out of that, businesses have had to change so much. You know, we've seen, I guess, people changing the way that they wanted to work and, and businesses needing to adapt to sort of almost like a labour market dictating what they wanted. Um, and, and so as leaders, it was quite hard to, you know, try to deal with a pandemic, but try to build with how you wanted your culture to look and then try to deal with your processes at the same time. So I'm guessing this has had been, as much as it's been a hard period, it's also been a period where I guess CEOs, CFOs, CTOs, however we want to look at it, they've all had to actually look at the way that their business was structured and, and look to change. Well, absolutely, and I think it was a really good case study that, uh, you know, we might assume that uh, people can't change or people won't change. Or <laughs> but, um, you know, you, you have a big enough crisis and uh, a big enough burning platform and amazing things can happen with people. And uh, this is where I think a lot of the stories around what we were telling ourselves about people and how business worked. I think it was already there. I think we had the technology happening, but I think people were already 
starting to question their roles. And I think the pandemic just accelerated that. Yeah. Um, I, I think what I've seen over my entire career is, is a real shift in terms of leadership and what that really means. And um, a lot of it's based on values and, and, and how we perceive the world. And, you know, I think there's still leaders out there that might assume we're still in this industrial age where you just tell people what to do and you threaten them with uh with salaries and and consequences and and that did work in a certain space of time but what we've seen with technology specifically in the pandemic where we started using collaborative technology getting onto social platforms like linkedin and using them more than we did previously people realize there's more options than that and i think the the technology is now driving the behavior when it comes to leadership because you know knowledge is now democratized so, you know, being the sexy specialist and this know-how kind of leader um, doesn't quite cut it anymore because all that data is available. Um, I think really where we're seeing leadership and change is moving to more of the social age, where it's understanding the values on both sides. It's about co-creating with your people. And, and what I like to show leaders, particularly with how we work in change, is that a lot of the potential in your problem solving is sitting right under your nose. And we've leaned six segment processes to death in many organizations. We've got pervasive technology, particularly in Australia. We love technology in this country. And, and a lot of uh, executives just buy it because it's nice and flashy. But right under your nose are people that understand your clients, that understand your business, that know what works, that know what doesn't work. And if we just give them an opportunity to co-create that change with them, a lot of the problems that keep executives up at nighttime can be solved by this sort of open source crowd wisdom. If we use technology and we use more social collaborative ways to drive change within and without our organizations. So when you're talking around leaders, and it was interesting you said, you know, some are still stuck in that industrial era, and, and I agree. And look, Tony made a statement once in a, in a session we were at. I think he's really great at, you know, knowing that he has younger staff and, and trying to sort of think about how he changes as well within his leadership. And, you know, we always have conversations around how we want to lead our team. And, you know, one thing he said is, you know, I've got staff members that can be, you know, my, my children and, you know, how how are we dealing with different generations? How have you found sort of leaders that, that may be older and, and, you know, people have worked long careers to get to a CEO position? How do you find sort of them dealing with this younger generation that have different views, have different values, you know, how do you collaboratively work together in that regard? I, that's a really good perspective. And, and if it's okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to maybe challenge it a little bit. Um, I, I initially thought it was a generational thing. So I thought it had to do with age. And, and whenever we use the generational word, uh, yeah, some people's sort of ears prick up and go, oh, you know. I mean, I've found people, older people I've worked with actually have quite forward-thinking values. And I've also found, especially maybe inexperienced people, wanting that structure, wanting that sort of top-down leadership. So the generational idea that it's about age, um, I'm starting to rethink a lot. And uh, I think a lot of contemporaries in this market are, are starting to rethink that. I like to look at it in a values perspective. I think uh, it, it's it, there's a couple of lenses we can look in how to engage that. and And I think... Looking at it purely on an age perspective might not might not give you the full picture. But if we look at it in terms of values, I think what we're seeing in the market is a split between those who value authority, governance, and we need a bit of that. Let's be yeah. honest. It's not about either or. Like, we need structures to create success. 
We can't just go into a business and make everything agile. It creates chaos, right? But on the one side, we've got these sort of old power value systems and values that, that value that consistency, that value that specialization, that value secrecy and confidentiality. And then on the other side of the coin, thanks to technology, thanks to how we're using social media, our phones, it's driven a value system that's about crowdsourcing, co-creation. Like I'm thinking of the Kickstarter generational value systems. And if you look at it in terms of values, that's a lot easier to see. And that's you can have conversations around this. So what we're seeing is, um, particularly in the market, somewhere in the middle, we're seeing people are no longer wanting to stay in an organization for 50 years. <laughs> and that's beyond age. Like we're seeing people, which was what's interesting, we're seeing some of the aging generation go, I can be an Uber driver one to two days a week. I can spend time with my grandchild, drive them around, and then maybe do a little bit of gig work like three days a week and work part-time in an organization. We're seeing younger people go, hey, I can go on Instagram and make money and have an underpants business on the side and have a side gig and and work in that. So I, I think if I summarize it, we've got to internalize and accept that people have a lot more options now. Yeah. And with all the stuff happening in the world, we can focus on the negative, but there are so many options thanks to technology, thanks to how we connect. Uh, you know, you no longer have to go to a university for seven years to learn things. Um, unless you want to and you love the academics, you can access specialists immediately uh, via LinkedIn and have a chat to them. And most of us have, like we do, we have our own courses to help leaders actually navigate this kind of change. So it's, it's really a world of these kind of power values that are playing out. And I believe this creative tension is needed. We almost need both sides, um, especially if we're going to do things like ESG reporting. You know, on yeah. the one side, we need the structure of this kind of stuff. But on the other side, we need the value system to actually drive that. And I think somewhere in the middle is 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 where it's at. I think what doesn't work, uh, Jamie, is, and we're seeing this with a lot of the big banks, is mandating people. I think if you're a leader who thinks you can mandate people and just because you pay people, they'll do something. We know now people, unless, if their basic costs are covered, if their survival costs are covered, money is not the motivator and threats won't motivate. So people are looking for meaning. People are looking for connection. People are looking to learn, to master things. So I think just assuming, I think the, the old power thinking is, oh, well, you know, I pay people, they'll just change. Or they yeah. have to do it. And the reality is you're not seeing the amount of options that people have to swap and swap and change because your competitor <laughs> is dying to get your people, especially if they've got your know-how. Um, but I also think if we go the other extreme, Jamie, and go, oh, well, let's just make it free for all. Um, I see a lot of people selling agile and thinking that's the answer to everything. Well, a lot of the data we're seeing is, well, one, agile is either an excuse to get rid of people, so people see through that, but two, it creates absolute chaos. So we need almost like a balance between these two approaches of this crowdsourcing co-created with leadership still having that final vote in a sense. But in doing so, it becomes more of a two-way conversation. And we can use technology to access people. We can use the human side skills. Uh, we can use independent consultants to do this as well if, if uh, you know, there isn't that psychological safety. So there's a lot of options to leaders. Um, but I think the main thing is being aware being aware that there are these two value systems and not projecting your own value system as a leader 
onto your people. You're talking around technology helping this. Do you want to talk around a little bit of the technologies that you use um, implementing into these businesses that help create, have like, you know, create these boards and conversations? Absolutely. So look, it's a blend of human skills and digital muscle. And I think basically we think there's three real skills out there and we believe in these skills and this is what we're building capability in business on. The, the, the first skill is being able to facilitate co-creation. So a lot of human-centered design would be the human technology we would use. So not just saying we're human-centric and we're thinking of people, but actually involving people in that process. And I'll give you a great example. The, the second is digital muscle. So a lot of those tools are firstly collaborative tech. So team whiteboards, Miro boards, uh, we use our slides and slide over lots to actually get that digital. And what I love about that, it allows people to give their inputs without having this free for all brainstorm where the loudest or most important person in the room speaks. Yeah. But it also allows people to be honest. So if you're a leader that's mature enough and ready to get real feedback, people are happy to use their phones. So uh, our slides, for example, people can just log in with their phones and they'll show live what people's sentiments are. Um, you can use anything in Microsoft, for example. If you're a bit old school, you can use OneNote, and you can use that in combination with breakout rooms. So any technology that allows people to collaborate, give their input. And when we layer a digital layer, you can scale the change. You can get more input. The latest one is obviously generative AI. So this is my exciting one. <laughs> so we've been obviously training and running a lot of labs for companies to, to start understanding what this means. What I will say about technology to all the listeners and to you is, uh, it's a lot, you don't have to be a tech expert anymore. There's a lot of programs like we're using a CRM called Monday.com. Yep. It's low code. So you can just change stuff as it goes without calling someone with a master's degree in technology to change it. But generative AI is what I'm excited about in change. Because if you go and co-create stuff with your staff, with a representation of your teams with focus groups, if you've got all those data points, you can scale this using collaborative technology. So you can survey that, you can focus group that, you can do a lot of things to get your staff's input. But using generative AI, we've started inputting that into a large language model program like ChatGPT. And what it can do is it can actually make sense of what your people are saying a lot quicker than me as a consultant going through a lot of that stuff. So that's why I say on the one hand, we need we need that facilitation mindset, that design thinking mindset, and that's a skill. That's not lip service. And that's what we like to bring to the table. Two, it's digital muscle. So working with whatever technology people have had to encourage people to give input. And, the, and, and then using generative AI to stitch that together to make sense of that so you can actually report back to your leaders a lot more efficiently and a lot more um, frequently. So a lot of the illusions is people think that this takes a lot of time. It actually doesn't. It takes a lot more time telling people what to do, uh, building a strategy, and then trying to convince people for three to six months this is where we're going, and then you miss out all the potential risks that could have happened versus actually asking your staff, co-creating change with your staff, getting them engaged, letting them have their input and say. And what I've learned is people don't necessarily want to have their say and have it done. They just want to be included in the conversation. What's what's some do you want to give us, I guess, some great examples or some stories of where you you know, a question's been asked to staff and it's created valuable change? 
Yeah, oh, I've got a great one. Uh, we had an organization that uh, we started, and they were quite conservative. Um, they actually had a lawyer CEO, uh, very conservative, but I, was, I managed to convince them that instead of doing a strategy for change, let's co-create that with your staff. Because they didn't know which way to go. And I said to them, well, guess what? Neither do I. I don't know your business as well as your people do. So I used the what if frame. I said, well, what if we get your leaders in? They've all been through these workshops. And what was great is we co-created a strategy with the teams. And because we did it with them, they outlined all the risks up front. Everyone was engaged up front and it sped up the project. But then COVID hits. (laughs) And the knee-jerk reaction I do find, uh, especially in our part of the world, is get rid of headcounts. And I said to them, well, look, we've already started using co-design, collaborative technology, human-centered design. Again, what if instead of just going and thinking who we need to, uh, who we need to actually get rid of in the organization to save money, what if we present this problem as a financial challenge? to brainstorm with the people that we've already workshopped with as, a, as part of that process. And you know what? It was amazing what happened. And this is what we call the wisdom of the crowd or the law of large numbers, is we asked people, we, we had a focus group with all of the leaders, we sort of asked, we, we presented the challenge and we, we framed it as a financial challenge. What are we going to do? There's less money coming in. What, what's going to happen? So um, we then surveyed all their staff and we said, well, this is the challenge. What should we do? And the idea came out that, well, what if some people, instead of losing our talent, are people open to working less hours or working less days? And it was crazy what happened. We had a large group of younger staff who said, oh, you know, I've got my underpants business on Instagram or uh, God forbid I'm on OnlyFans. (laughs) Um, But they wanted to use the pandemic to sort of look at, they're sort of side hustles. Explore, explore different options. So they were like, we're happy to work two to three days a week and start working with a good coach uh, to build a business. We then had people, like I said, in the older generation, they were like, you know what, I'm tired. <laughs> I want to spend more time with my grandkids, and I actually am fine being an Uber driver. And this, these are real examples of what people said. And then there were people in the middle that were like, oh, no, we can't. We've got the mortgage. We've got everything in the middle. But the law of if we had not asked this, they would have got rid of people and lost that talent. And it was a temporary problem, the pandemic. But there were enough people in the two buckets that were happy to drop their days and go on a, 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 a lower salary that covered the people who wanted to stay on the floor. And had we not engaged their people and asked and been curious and brave enough, I mean, those leaders were brave doing this, trying something new. Uh, they might have lost a lot of talent. Yeah. And now those people have stuck with the organization. They're all working full time now, but they've stuck with the organization doing. So that's a really good way to not jump to a solution, but co-create that with your staff. And there's a lot more love. There's a lot more respect for that business owner and that, that board. Do you find over time, you know, you're sending this survey out to staff, I guess it's anonymous um, what people are writing back to start with. Do you find over time, if you, you start to, implement this change that staff to become more willing to give their input? Like I can imagine within a small business, staff may be a bit scared to sort of vote a certain way or, you know, does it take time to really drive that change? 
Um, yes and no. It depends on a few things. I think, one, there's a large value of having someone independent doing this. Yeah. So it doesn't become an us versus them. Um, two, whenever staff give feedback, respond to it, even if it's a no. Yeah. So if your staff say, you know, they, they want Taco Tuesdays and everyone has burritos for free and the budget doesn't say it, you've got to respond to that feedback. You've got to thank them for it. And that speeds it up. You thank them for it and say, look, we've looked at the budget. No, but here's what we can do. That's a good leader. So does it happen over time? Yes. It happens over time if there's a perceived psychological safety, if there's no consequence. Because I've also seen this go wrong. I've seen a leader use something like a slider where they say, hi, guys, we're coming back to the office. What do you guys think? We want you to come three days a week. And someone put there, we'll come back to the office if you sort out the toxic culture. And the leader in front of everyone got defensive. And they were like, that's so disrespectful. How could you say that? Blah, 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 blah. And that killed it. Like, it, yeah. it takes one moment like that. And uh, this is where having a good coach or someone in your pocket independent behind the scenes to prep you for this kind of stuff really, really helps. But if that leader had just gone, hmm, that's interesting feedback. Let's explore what that means. That's a different story. So not taking it personally, but still owning your power as the leader and saying, well, look, I didn't perceive it like that, but let, let's look into that. It's interesting. So I think, I think there's some leaders that see that as failure. Whereas there's other leaders that are more open and see that as feedback. Yeah. And I think your ability to not perceive things as failure and take it personally as a leader, but to see it, and this is good for business. <laughs> often, often, uh, you know, 80% of our good ideas fail and it's the 20% that do well. So if we, if we as business leaders or owning an SME lead our business thinking that if things don't go our way or people don't say certain things, as a failure, we're going to react like that. So it's it's almost just seeing it as feedback and not taking it on board. And that's what I like to help leaders with, is realizing, well, if you are reacting to it and getting defensive, if you're blaming, you're probably on the effect side of the equation and uh, you're not really seeing this as feedback. Whereas if you're seeing it as a creative opportunity, that your staff are being honest, they feel safe enough to tell you this. That's the, the positive of someone saying that, is they feel safe and comfortable enough to say this. And the second there's a consequence for honesty, it can shut down everybody else because someone else would see that and then go, no. Yeah. I don't want to speak up now that this person's been drilled for speaking up. Well, exactly, exactly. So um, that's where psychological safety comes in. Yeah. Um, and that's the journey. I, I, think, I think it takes curiosity of leaders, but we've also got to understand that for people to give feedback, we've got to create that psychological safety, which is as simple as this. I don't like to get into the fluffy kind of stuff and semantics of it, but if people know that they can be honest and give you real feedback without consequence, they can make mistakes and grow and learn, that's psychological safety. Now, we've spoken about a lot of the work that you do, but I actually want to talk about Earth to Mars, and I want to talk about, you know, where the idea of Earth to Mars come from and, and sort of how you went through your own creative process to say, look, you know, we're laughing about being an entrepreneur and it's never enough. You know, talk, talk to me about the concept, the idea, and, and how you sort of kickstarted um, this venture. Ah, uh, JB, you and Kafka and Bonner are going to love the answer to this. Okay, I'm ready. I... I was working with a financial planner with you guys, yep. and it was it was actually him who was working with me on this. Um, 
Yes. We were talking about being an entrepreneur and having this lack of enoughness. And, um, you know, I went through my career. I think my journey took me to Australia. So I'm originally from Johannesburg, South Africa. If you can yep. uh, hear my accent, yeah. Can get the, can get the accent, definitely. <laughs> you can get it, yeah. Um, and I got to Australia and, and whilst I'd had my experience with entrepreneurship and innovation in South Africa, I really didn't have the networks here. So I, I started working for consultancies to build up my networks. And to be honest, it, I got frustrated and it wasn't enough for me. I felt that I was getting great feedback from clients, but I don't know that whole tall puppy syndrome kicked in for me. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs, whether you're South African or not, often get that is we think bigger, we think creatively, and sometimes that threatens leaders. So I realized that my first hurdle with Earth to Mars was like, I need to stop working via consultancies. So then I went into independent contracting and I did the same thing. And love them or hate them, great feedback from clients doing amazing things, but my biggest barrier there was recruiters. So there was always this middle person between me and really helping a client and deliver it. And recruiters would often connect me with clients that were misaligned. So I wanted more choice and freedom. Kind of long story short, I uh, went to Bali. <laughs> I worked with a coach and I worked with my financial planner. And I went to Bali and I took some time out. I wrote what I called, can I swear on this, by the way? Yeah, far away. All right, I, I wrote something me. called the fuck it bucket. And I encourage anyone who actually wants to start a business or is uh, having doubts in their business role today, and I wrote down everything I hated about being an employee or being like a fixed-term contractor. And I've still got this list, and we never have a bad day in business. So I had to get all the shit out first. But then I did the old-school creative vision board. And you know what was amazing? There was earthy stuff on it. There was a Elon Musk and Mars on it. And there was all these things on the vision board, which have all manifested. And then I wrote down my 10 out of 10 day. What do I want my perfect day and my perfect week to look like? So I wrote down, I want to be coaching businesses Mondays to Fridays. I want to be doing consulting work with more freedom across a few clients on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays. And mornings, evenings, and weekends, I want to be doing training and, and capability burning and learning programs around change. And you know what was scary? Step one, within three weeks, I was living that. Because I primed myself. But then I sat with my financial planner. We were looking at the vision board because, you know, you need to have a name for the business. I'm like, what are we going to call this? And we were like, look, look at all this earth stuff. Look at all this Mars stuff. And then he was like, we both said at the same time, earth to Mars. <laughs> and, it and it became almost like a, a metaphor for what we do with clients. Is a lot of clients are comfortable with earth. It's their safe space. It's the human side. But a lot of leaders want that vision, that Mars, that crazy goal, that big, scary, hairy goal. And space is the awkward tension that we've got to take people through to get there. So it's very much what we do in change, in our coaching, in our learning, is, is taking people from their comforts putting them on our little spaceship of the awkwardness of change. And we don't shy away from that kind of stuff. We don't see resistance as bad. We see it as engagement. And getting them to that scary, hairy goal like Mars. And um, that's how the name was born. So, yeah, it's uh, it's we've, we've been around for, at this point, five, just over five years. I'm very proud of it. And I think any business who's gone through the last five years, <laughs> You've got to be proud of yourself, hey, if there's any listeners out there. I mean, we had the pandemic. We had, obviously, this uh, recession, uh, and I'm saying that with inverted commas. Um, 
you know, that, that we're having now with interest rates mm. going up. But I will say something, uh, coming from South Africa, I, I was born into crisis in a sense. And I think, thank goodness, like as painful as the pandemic was when it happened, um, it allowed us to innovate. It allowed us to find products and work differently at a much lower cost to deliver our learning and deliver our um, strategy products and our coaching. So it really sort of gave us a lot in terms of, you know, someone once said to me, you know, it's, it's the crises that build your business. And and a lot of mentors that I look up to have said the same thing. If you can get comfortable with that discomfort and face the crises, on the other end of that is a breakthrough. It's a it's a business innovation. So um, that that's pretty much it tomorrow. So uh, you know, obviously we've got a team now. We we work across a couple of timelines. Um, really at a macro level, we we do that good consulting around change, around leadership, uh, using co-creation, using digital. Um, we do a lot of uh, capability building. So if people want to learn how we do this, uh, they can come on our courses. We've got things like ChatGPT courses as well to help people sort of make friends with the machine and use it to engage people. And at a micro level, we, we coach other businesses, uh, especially startups who really uh, – we, we either work with um, emerging leaders because I think there's a lot around executive coaching, but there's not around uh, amongst those emerging leaders. And during the pandemic, we set up about seven businesses that are still operating today for people that lost jobs. So it's it's really about helping people um, find their earth, get to Mars and uh, make their own history and write that to themselves. Andrew, I absolutely love it. And I think, you know, as we're talking off, we, we have a lot of business leaders in this that sort of, you know, are our feedback and are our listeners. So, May, I want to really thank you for your time today. Um, engaging conversation. I, I love the whole idea. And I think, you know, as a leader in a business, it's, these are the things that you need to think of and, and you can't stay still. You need to continuously look at this. You need to continuously talk to staff. So, mate, I appreciate your time today and jumping on the podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on board. Thank you. The Kofkin Bond Podcast is a product from Kofkin Bond & Co., which we are an authorised representative of Gown Financial. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal or tax advice. The hosts of the Kofkin Bond Podcast are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decision, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from the podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Kofkin Bond website, or you can find resources on the ASIC website and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Kofkin Bond and Co. and the hosts of the Kofkin Bond podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of the country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea, and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.